Welcome to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein, flying solo for the next few days as my colleague and co-host Ashley Thornburg is taking a well-deserved vacation. In the second half of today's show, we'll hear an interview Ashley taped with philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein for Philosophical Currents. The two will discuss the role of satire in politics. But first, the University of North Dakota has a new dean of the College of Education and Human Development, and although Shelby Whitty won't officially begin until later this year, she's preparing to hit the ground running. Shelby Whitty has been named the Dean of the College of Education and Human Development at the University of North Dakota. Dr. Whitty is now my guest. Welcome to Main Street. Thank you so much for having me today. Why do you want to come to North Dakota? Well, why wouldn't I want to come to North Dakota? I hear you're having an amazing, amazing winter, um, but I look forward to um, experiencing all the things in North Dakota from your beautiful summers to your challenging but uh, eventful winters and being a part of the University of North Dakota and the community there. More than that, I'm looking forward to being a part of the College of Education and Human Development and playing a part in the great work that's already happening there and attempting to solve some of the, the world's problems, and those start right there in the backyard of the university. And there are a lot of problems and challenges I think that we're going to get into, but how did you hear about the job? What interested you about it? Well, several folks had reached out to me about some leadership positions across the country, but what spoke to me directly about the UND opportunity was were the similarities to Oklahoma State University, the similarities both in size of city, size of the institution, the makeup of the college, and the great programs that make up the college itself were very similar to my own experiences. And then when I read the job description and the leadership profile, I could see myself being a great partner for the folks there. I was encouraged to apply and so glad that I did. As you look at that job profile, what comes in your mind as a couple of challenges that are going to be on your plate? I think the challenge for any new leader is getting a sense of the institution as it currently stands. So I look forward to getting to know folks and getting to know programs and getting to know the partners and the community and the wider North Dakota communities across the state and how the university can continue to be a leader, have a sort of reciprocity or a opportunity to work collaboratively with you know clinics and schools and community centers and all the ways that the work that happens in our college happens in the communities there in North Dakota. Are you bringing your hockey skates with you? <laughs> I've heard a lot about hockey. We used to have a, a minor league team here in Oklahoma called the Blazers when I was growing up. So, so I'm not a stranger to hockey, but it will be quite a change from a Big 12 football football and wrestling powerhouse to a hockey powerhouse. But I look, we're sports fans, so I look forward to learning so much more about hockey. I'm sure, Dr. Woody, you have analyzed North Dakota's problems with training and retaining teachers. Bottom line, there's a teacher shortage. What can you do about that? I think that's a multifaceted answer. I think there are many things we can do and should be doing across the country. That starts in North Dakota. For me, thinking about the teacher shortage, not only do we need to do more to make the career of teaching one that folks want to commit to and be retained in. Let me, let me stop um, you right there and, real quickly. Uh, what does that mean? Yeah. 
So I think step one is making sure teachers not only are prepared, comprehensively prepared to take on the challenges of teaching, but they have the support in those critical year one to year five, where um, where they learn very quickly what they know and what they don't know and what can't be taught in a comprehensive program and what has to be learned there with boots on the ground in a classroom. So the types of professional development support that we can offer, the types of instruction coaching that we can do from a university standpoint. There are many different programs across the country that have had success in supporting and mentorship in those critical early years for the early career teacher. And I think that makes all the difference, a teacher being able to put down roots and, and stay in a school district that they've chosen to work with from the very beginning. Is it the college's responsibility, Dr. Witte, to reach out to even local school boards and try to bridge those communication areas that some local school boards are different than others? I think it's everybody's responsibility. The University of North Dakota has and will continue to take the lead in trying to address the teacher shortage. And that begins with having conversations about what particular school districts need and how we can be a better, stronger partner for the challenges that they each face. But I do think there's some commonalities across all districts, no matter how how differently they're designed. Lots of research will show that the teaching environment, as well as that professional development I was talking about, and then I think the elephant in the room, teacher pay, can go a long way to stopping the bleed out that's happening in the the teaching profession. And then on the other side of that challenge are, are, are the preparation of teachers and ways that we can recruit more college students to want to be teachers, the way we can encourage high school students who have an interest in teaching to think early on about teaching as a career, and then finding those that maybe have partially completed a college degree to encourage them to come back and finish strong in a teacher education program to be ready for the classroom. I think there's many different approaches we could take together. What is your analysis, Dr. Woody, of teacher pay and how it fits in North Dakota relative to the rest of the country? Being a teacher myself, I I know and have seen year after year after year the challenges of folks that are teachers just trying to make ends meet. From Florida to Georgia to Oklahoma to Kansas and all the states where I've been involved in teacher education, there's one thing that continues to emerge over and over again is that teacher pay is significantly lower in those states compared to other states. And while the cost of living may be less in some of those the states that I've been in, the investment in education continues to decline over time from legislative funding to the amounts of funding from the federal government for education programs. And so if we want to think about education more broadly, we can't stop short of thinking about investing in education as an investment in kids, an investment in our future. And so I I hope to encourage and continue to make a case for North Dakotans to think about investing in education as an investment in their future. Is it any different, Dr. Woody, training a teacher to teach in the public sector versus a teacher preparing herself or himself to teach in the private sector? Not in my experience. I think there are opportunities and challenges both in private institutions and public institutions, public schools. But the truth of the matter, our kids are kids. Learning is learning. Curriculum, while they may differ in some private schools compared to public schools, ultimately the learning theory is the same. The approaches to teaching and engaging learners in learning is 
is the same. The assessments are can and should be the same. So I don't see a difference in the preparation. Uh, I have found over and over again when our graduates choose one avenue or the other, both are thoroughly prepared to tackle any challenges that may come from either one of those environments. Is it your perspective that market fragmentation occurs because of this public school, private school competition, if you will? And are there concerns that you have about how that's managed, if not here in the state of North Dakota, but maybe more globally, more nationally? Well, there certainly are arguments for the use, uh, arguments for and against the use of public funding for privatization of education. And I look forward to learning more about what North Dakota has done in those arenas. I choose to look at it not as a private versus public, but what is it that we can do together? Because ultimately what we want for every child in the state and every child in this country is to have the very best teacher possible leading that classroom and leading their learning through each grade level that they go through. And so to me, it's not a matter of private versus public, but how can we get the best teachers in those classrooms no matter what? We're enjoying our conversation with Dr. Shelby Whitty. She's been named the Dean of the College of Education and Human Development at the University of North Dakota. When's your first day on the job? July 1st, although I have already been corresponding with partners and faculty and hearing from folks in the community. So we could already say that we started the day that I accepted the position and I'm just thrilled to, I'm thrilled that folks are excited I'm coming and I'm excited to get there. What is your teaching background? Well, I started as a middle school language arts teacher in a small town in Oklahoma on Highway 81, which happens to run directly through Grand Forks, North Dakota. (laughs) I've taught middle school, high school, and and taught all grade levels through university as well. Did my studies at Kansas State University, my graduate degrees there, and first teaching position at the university was at Florida State University in Tallahassee. So I've had lots of experience at all grade levels. Literacy is my area of expertise, and I'm a techie at heart as well, and love to think of the intersections of literacy and technology as we think about the future future training of our teachers and classrooms. The age of students I've enjoyed teaching the most has been? Middle school. Why? <laughs> Gosh, well, of course, I love university work, don't get me wrong, but there's just something special about a middle level student, middle school student. There's a sense of innocence that hasn't been lost yet with middle schoolers, but also a sense of humor, a sense of satire, a sense of hope for the world and and a little bit of civil disobedience, which is fun to watch as well. You classify that as a good thing. (laughs) Oh, sure. I I think it's fun to watch students learn and grow and stretch and think about how they fit into the world and think about how they might impact the world as they get older and how they can as middle schoolers too, because it's their world too. Is diversity an issue that's on your plate being a dean now of a major university's education program in recruiting diversity? diverse folks to become teachers? Oh, of course. I, I think it behooves us as an institution to, to think very strategically about ways to recruit minoritized voices and folks that might not typically choose teaching because they felt like they didn't have a place within it. And that goes from both racial diversity, religious diversity, gender diversity, and helping folks see that there's a place and space for them 
program at the University of North Dakota to, to fulfill their dreams of being a teacher. And part of that is going out into communities that are normally underserved by the institution and recruiting folks, either young people or even adults, to consider second careers to be teachers. We have to make a very strategic effort to help our um, young people be able to see teachers that look like them, that um, think like them, to give them opportunities to see both mirrors of recognition of themselves, but also windows to understanding people from places they may have never been or even thought about traveling to on, and understanding cultures different than their own. All right. You told me you're a techie. So now yes. now I want some straight talk, Dr. Whitty. How concerned are okay. you? with AI in education, either from a student's perspective or a teacher's perspective? Oh, goodness. I'm not sure concern is the right word. One of my favorite philosophers is Ted Lasso, who, if you've never seen <laughs> oh boy, I uh, have. Ted Lasso. <laughs> yes. And one of his quotes in one of the shows is, be curious, not judgmental. I think uh, the approach to AI that I'm taking now and many of my colleagues take is curiosity, not judgment. And uh, there are many opportunities for AI to serve us well as a tool. And I think that's the important word there, tool. Um, how can we use the tool to be of help and benefit to us um, in education, both at the university level um, and then preparing our um, you know, future counselors, our future mental health professionals, our future instructional designers to use artificial intelligence for good and for, for the purpose of efficiency, for the purpose of establishing some basic baseline information, but there's no duplicating humanity, in my opinion. There's no duplicating the care and thought and concern that each of those professionals bring to a situation, a case, or a classroom that AI could replace. I've watched over the years, and in my professional background, have observed this great technology being brought to classrooms, Dr. Woody, and the teacher looks at it and says, I don't know. I don't understand how to apply that to what it is I'm supposed to do. I have no idea. And so uh, the technology was great, but it's set there. How do you plan to help with that bridge of technology and a teacher group, if you will, that has been used to doing certain things certain ways for a very long time? Sure. Well, I think this has been a question that has existed for the past 7,500 years, right? What will we ever do with having a computer in a classroom? The same questions were asked when personal computers were when PCs broke onto the market in a more broad marketplace. I think if we can think of technology, like I said, as a tool, some days you need a pencil, some days you need markers, some days you need a ruler, some days you need the PC or the laptop or the Chromebook. Some days you may use the tool of artificial intelligence. You're right. There are times where so many tools are thrown at teachers with the expectation of using the tool just for the sake of using the tool. And what I hope we would continue to do in our work is to help a teacher discern when is the right tool for the right time and to help students themselves discern what is the best tool to use to solve these problems or to, to further this discussion? Do I need a pencil today or do I need an AI intervention today or do I need my Chromebook today? And I think sometimes folks overthink the technology and thinking that the technology drives the instruction when it should be just the other way around. I'm very curious about policy engagement and I'd love to hear your thoughts on 
the role of the university or the role of educators in shaping those policies, maybe at the legislative level where pressures may be making teaching even more difficult? Well, I think it's important to help professionals in the field tell their stories. And I think one role that the university plays is helping bridge that gap between what policymakers are hearing and from whom they're hearing those stories to hearing from the the professionals that are in clinics, in classrooms, in community centers, doing the real work and helping them understand how the policies and legislation that they're considering can impact those that are doing the hard work. I think there's many examples across the country of policies and legislation that are passed without the due diligence being done to see what the impact can be and, and, and what that looks like, or some consideration of the costs of rolling out particular movements and significant changes, such as you know assessment changes or curricular changes. So I think the university's role, one, is um, being a bridge builder between the practitioners and professionals and the legislators, as well as we hope that our, the legislators' first phone call after calling the folks out on the field are calling the university to say, what research has been done? What are the trends across the nation? What are your thoughts on particular approaches to take? And we hope that those relationships are developed over time and trust is developed over time. Because ultimately, I think everyone, both legislators that are serving the state in those in those roles, as well as those of us at the university and those in those various places, all want what's best for people. And if we can come to agreements that we really have the best intentions at heart, I think we have much more in common than we don't. It seems to me that legislative pressures on teacher environment, that those pressures are increasing and will be increasing. Do you share that view? I don't know if increasing is exactly the right word. I think they continue to become more complex from the types of legislation being taught to the types of narratives that exist in the world about teaching and about schools and the false narrative that schools are failing our kids and that teachers somehow are lacking in the professional preparation to do a good job. I think those are the complex challenges that are happening. And those things influence the decision makers. So, you know, circling back to telling the stories of what's really happening in classrooms, I think that's how we learn to better understand each other. It's been a long time, I'm sure, since many legislators have been in a school for an extended period of time or or been in a, a mental health clinic or have seen the direct impacts of the types of addiction and, for example, the fentanyl epidemic that's happening in the country. So until they get, again, their boots on the ground and see what they're really legislating, I think it's hard for them to know the decisions they're making and how they will impact people and until they spend some time with the people that they're discussing in those policies. So I look forward to getting to know the legislators in, in North Dakota, spending time with them. And in the year 2024, even if we don't agree and don't see eye to eye on approaches, we should be able to do that in, in ways that are productive that move us forward. One of the things that I really watched was this concept of what was happening in my native state of Wyoming, Dr. Woody. And that concept was local control, that local decisions really need to be made by school boards. Well, what that meant was is that somebody maybe in the western side of the state was learning differently than someone on the eastern side of Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Is that a concern of yours, that the state may not be completely on the same page relative to curriculum development and other things? 
I don't think I'm concerned about that. I think there's a lot of truth to even the intricacies of how a person in the first row of a classroom learns differently than somebody on the second row of the classroom and so on and so forth. And, and the people that know the most about how to differentiate the types of learning approaches that are needed for kids are the teachers or the professionals and are the leaders in those schools, the instructional coaches and the team, the school team. So to have a one state approach to learning that doesn't take into account all of those intricacies would be misguided and likely against what research tells us are um, best practices for helping learners to succeed. Dr. Witte, a dozen years from now, maybe 20 years from now, what do you hope your legacy will be now that you're just starting this position as the Dean of the College of Education and Human Development at the University of North Dakota? Oh, goodness. Well, I hope to be of use. I hope to be a leader that uh, folks can look to for leadership and not only in teacher education, but in all the areas in the college from counseling to kinesiology, public health, rehabilitation, all the things that we do. I hope that the legacy that I leave behind is I I hope to leave it better than I found it. And I hope that the nation in a dozen years has done something to significantly impact the the ways in which educators specifically are appreciated and supported and compensated. And I hope that we can look back and over time look at the growth that we have made and really strengthening a teacher core. We're no longer concerned about having teachers to fill positions in classrooms. I hope that we can be in a place where there is a nice, healthy balance between open positions and teachers to fill those positions. And I hope that we continue to develop a sense of pride and a sense of respect for educators and the types of professionals that come out of the College of Education and Human Development. Because at the end of the day, it's about helping people live better lives. And if we have done that, and if that's my legacy, then I will count that as a success. Dr. Shelby Witte, she's been named the Dean of the College of Education and Human Development at the University of North Dakota. Dr. Witte, welcome to North Dakota. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Main Street. More Main Streets ahead. Stay with us. This is Bird Note. In the long history of life on Earth, vertebrates evolved powered flight just three times. Among reptiles, the now-extinct pterosaurs, among mammals, the bats, and, of course, birds. Bats and birds have evolved very different ways of flying. This starts with wing structure. A bird like the red-tailed hawk, for example, has stiff feathers projecting back from lightweight, fused arm and hand bones. The big brown bats, on the other hand, found hunting for insects above many neighborhoods, have flexible wings of membranes stretched between elongated fingers. While the hawk uses the powerful downstrokes of its wings to fly, the bat supports its weight on the upstroke as well by twisting its wings backward. Bats appear to row through the air, flexing their wings like we use our hands to swim. They can fold their wings into different shapes to change direction suddenly to catch flying insects. Although their agility in flight is no match for a bat's, many birds fly with much greater speed. 
the hawk can flex its wings into a tight, aerodynamic shape to swoop down on prey. Both of these highly evolved groups of vertebrates have been very successful, and together prove there's more than one way to fly. For Bird Note, I'm Ariana Rimmel. We'd like to thank the North Dakota Council on the Arts for supporting arts programming here on Prairie Public. After the break, satire and politics. But first, this. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein. Ashley Thornburg visits with philosopher Jack Russell Weinstein, and the topic is satire and politics in this philosophical currents. Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, I'm happy to be here. So talking about satire and this in the face of Jon Stewart coming back to the host chair on The Daily Show, at least on Mondays, and then working uh, to do more of the executive producing of the show, certainly satire has been part of our political history. Take us back, Jack, to talking about the history of satire and and how it became so linked with politics. Well, first of all, human beings are creatures that laugh. I think that's an essential part of who we are. And to compartmentalize that and say there are certain things we shouldn't laugh about or laughing is inappropriate in X, Y, or Z, that runs against the grain. And a lot of traditions have used laughter to break the ice, break the ice in uncomfortable situations, break the ice in terms of wanting to announce things that are very difficult or just the opportunity to talk about things that they wouldn't otherwise have. So as far back in history as we can go, we find humor. We find humor in the ancient Greeks where they are looking at at certain ideas with both tragedy in the one hand and comedy in the other. One of my uh, two favorite plays, one is called Lysistrata by Aristophanes, in which the uh, Greek women put on a sex strike in order to get men to stop going to war. And the other is Aristophanes' play The Clouds, where he's making fun of Socrates and making fun of philosophy in general. And then you start to see the beginning of pantomime in Greece that goes through Rome, but you also see that in Japan and in India, and that coalesces in France with mime in the 19th century. And so you can see just anywhere you go this this thread of laughing when you need to. The problem is that when someone lands a good joke, when someone says something that just knocks people down, it's very, very, very hard to retort without being equally funny. Mm. And that's what leads politicians astray, because when someone says something super funny, the only way to get your your legs back under you is to be even funnier and to win the the battle that way. Politicians are not known that. for that. That's right. Yeah. Um, wh- what do you think it can go deeper, though, than just taking a look at our politics? Well, sure. Um, laughter is present in every aspect of our lives. And I think that part of the issue is that we tend not to talk about play as adults. Mm. We tend to talk about hobbies and we talk about pastimes, but 
We don't acknowledge that play is an important aspect of what it means to be healthy. And so what laughter is, what comedy is, what satire can be, are ways of injecting that playfulness into things that we, again, are a little uncomfortable with or just want to have more fun with. Hmm. We learn about ourselves by learning about what kind of things we laugh at. And we face our values uh, directly, face to face, when we encounter a joke and try to figure out how to how to deal with it, right? So bullies use satire to belittle people, but then at the same time, the funny kid in class uses comedy to disarm the bully. And it's one of those that it's an incredibly effective tool to well for pretty much any aspect of our life. I'm thinking about the former mayor of Bogota in Colombia, and he famously mostly got rid of the traffic cops, and this was in an area with just really high uh, traffic mortality rates, and rehired them as traffic mimes. <laughs> and, and these mimes were going around and miming um, the the bad behavior of bad drivers and, and calling attention to the good behavior of good drivers. And it dramatically cut down on traffic deaths here uh, because people started paying attention to that in a way that they clearly weren't paying attention to it when it was just the heavy police presence. What do you make of that? There's something about comedy that I guess we could call an instructive distraction. If you just had people on the side of the road flashing or something like that, people might notice, but then they'd forget everything about them. But by having mimes around telling you what to do, you are distracted and focused at the same time. You're distracted by everything but what you're supposed to think about, which Mm. is where are the other cars? Where are the lights? When you have a comedian on stage who's revealing something about the values that you want to call attention to, you are distracted but learning at the same time. The best comics, I'm a big fan as, as listeners know of Chris Rock, the best comics are comics that teach us about ourselves and talk about what we think is necessary but is actually destructive, but they do it through comedy. So you don't get defensive. You don't get your hackles up. That's one of the that's one of the negotiations that we're having right now in our culture is when someone gets their hackles up, when someone is offended by comedy, what does that say about the comedy? But also, what does that say about the people themselves? Are they simply offended and then shutting down? Or are they willingly and intentionally trying not to learn something? I wonder, though, Jack, if that sort of begs the line of questioning of deciding what is offensive because so many times you hear, oh, well, they just need to loosen up. You know, it's easy to think that when you are sort of the in-group that isn't getting made fun of, um, that 
the other people just need to loosen up. But then when it's a joke uh, that clearly makes you angry, like, why don't we see that same thing of, well, maybe I need to loosen up? How come it's so easy to recognize that in somebody else? Or or is that even the right question? Maybe, maybe it's not who needs to loosen up. Maybe it's if I'm offended, why don't I understand why the other person is offended in the opposite scenario? Well, so there's two ways we can go with that. The first is to examine the notion of vulnerability. Comedy makes us feel very vulnerable because it uh, exposes things about ourselves or other people that maybe we don't want out in the fresh air. And this is why right now, part of the conversation about people like Chris Rock, people like Dave Chappelle, um, people like um, uh, the guy who who did the original Office, I can't remember his name. Uh, Ricky Gervais? Are the, yes, thank you, uh, Gervais, Ricky Gervais. Are they punching up or punching down? It's one thing to make fun of people who have more power than us, more success, more money, more secure. It's another to punch down and make fun of people who are on the brink, who are uh, marginalized, whose, whose lives are in threat. That's part of what some people are saying. I'm not saying I endorse that, but I'm not saying I'm against it either. That's, that's the question of vulnerability. The other question, which is really the flip side uh, of the, the same issue is the question of empathy, which is does comedy help you see other people's perspectives or does comedy help you uh, push away other people's perspective? Racist jokes, sexist jokes, they tend to push away people as opposed to make you closer. And so one of the great ironies of human experience is that often the hardest person we have time empathizing with is ourselves. Mm. We get so angry at ourselves. We, we see ourselves falsely in the mirror. We have a kind of all-inclusive dysmorphia in which we do not see ourselves the way that people see us. And so comedy can both make people incredibly vulnerable and block the possibility of empathy at the same time. And that makes it super dangerous. And so the question becomes, which comedy successfully navigates that and which doesn't? I think that one of the things that allows us to navigate this is to have comedy be smart, have comedy be perceptive, have comedy, again, teach us things. Comedy that just reveals the mundane, that, that, that doesn't make us think, it doesn't take you anywhere. It's, it, it's a laughter that, that is, is only funny for the moment. But comedy that reflects our values against us, comedy that underscores the controversies in politics, those can be super effective, both because we will laugh not just once, but multiple times, but also we will learn from the exchange and become better or more perceptive people. Does that mean you should be okay only getting your news from The Daily Show? I think it's probably better to get news from The Daily Show rather than getting no news at all. <laughs> I mean, if that's the only thing you are ever going to look at, it gives you a sense of the themes. However, I think that that everyone should have at least a toe in the major news providers. I think listening to NPR, <laughs> reading a newspaper, uh, having conversations uh, are very, very important elements of understanding how the world 
operates and what the key issues are. But what The Daily Show has always done better than anyone else is say, here is the key fault line right now. Here is what you should be thinking about if you're thinking about anything. And what made Jon Stewart and Trevor Noah particularly um, powerful is that they were always in, in, reliable interlocutors. They never gave us false information. They teased. They were sarcastic. They pretended. But if you were paying attention in any level at all, you knew the difference between the claims that were true that they were reacting against and the claims that were part of the bit. And that's really, really powerful. That's a gift and a particular attraction for people who feel alienated by the news or who feel overwhelmed because they can't read a full newspaper every day or they can't listen to a 60-minute podcast or a two-hour news program every day. They need something compact and easy to understand that isn't going to make them feel dumb or out of the loop. The problem and the danger with something like The Daily Show is that it does create an us versus them mentality, hmm. and that interferes with that empathetic capacity. So the best bits are the ones that help us understand, allow us to have empathy, but get us to laugh at the absurdity at the same time. Well, speaking of absurdity, and an argument can be made that this is going perhaps too far, is John Oliver offering a million dollars to a Supreme Court justice to retire? Is it moral? Is it ethical for comedians and, and political satirists to be actively trying to interfere with the process? I think it's a brilliant stunt by John Oliver because I think it cuts to the quick. I think it gets to the very core of the central problem with Clarence Thomas. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that Clarence Thomas is corrupt and that he's taken illegal gifts in the form of property, in the form of, of payments to his mother's landlord and things like that. And, and the thing about corruption, the thing about blackmail, the thing about um, paying someone off is that it has to be done in secret to be effective. What John Oliver is doing is taking these charges and putting them up front and saying, okay, I'm going to give you the money and you're either going to do it or you're not. He's not doing anything illegal. He's not blackmailing or bribing someone. He is offering him a uh, gift that Clarence Thomas can't possibly take. Clarence Thomas, if he were to retire tomorrow for any other reason, it would absolutely condemn him and his reputation for all of history. So now what we have to do is we have to get Clarence Thomas to talk about and to think about these other gifts. That puts it on the table. I joked to my wife that what I'd like to see is another very rich person offering him a million dollars to stay on the court. <laughs> and that way he's completely trapped. Whatever he does, he's accused of taking money. All of this is to say that John Oliver's trick, John Oliver's sleight of hand has forced the issue onto the table 
as part of a major conversation. And in the end, that is what comedy is supposed to do. Comedy is supposed to take something that you are not talking about and put it on the table so that people can talk about it directly. So how do we do that part responsibly? I don't have an answer for that, in part because I'm not a successful comedian, <laughs> and in part because uh, I'm not made uncomfortable by a lot of jokes that other people are made uncomfortable by. This is actually part of my religious tradition. In, in, in the Jewish tradition, jokes are, are, are key to both understanding your place in the world, but also understanding God. You can make jokes about God. You can make jokes about belief. And so I'm very comfortable with controversial ideas. What I will say is a joke that someone can't recover from, a joke that belittles people undeservedly. I'll come back to that in a second. A joke that takes away people's power that is designed to undermine who they are. That is walking the line and you have to do that very carefully. Now, I said I, I would come back to the idea of undeservedly. There are people who we should make fun of in order to take away their power. There are people we, we should make fun of because they are they're too dangerous and they're they're they have too much influence. And if we can take uh if if we can take Vladimir Putin and make a joke out of him and make him less attractive to the folks who are attracted to this communist fascist leader, that would be incredible. If we can disarm that with comedy as opposed to guns, if we can make him less attractive, not by laying bodies on the battlefield, by, but by coming up with a bunch of good jokes, that would be the best gift of all. Comedy doesn't kill people. And that makes it an effective tool for social change and something that I personally prefer to some of the more destructive, violent, and cutting ways of dealing with people. Philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein for Philosophical Currents. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. Support for Brave Public is provided by Jade Presents, bringing the High Kings and Gaelic Storm to the stage of the Fargo Theater, 8 p.m. Tuesday, March 5th. Tickets at jadepresents.com. Welcome back to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. Veterinary medicine was once a profession dominated by men. In the past 15 years, though, women have become the majority of practicing veterinarians and students. Despite these changes, some areas of the field still lag behind. Harvest Public Media's Lily Halloran looks into why rural animal practices are still largely male-dominated. Dr. Bailey Lammers admits running her own veterinary practice in rural Nebraska can be a challenge, especially with family at home. When she first started Gavin's Point Vet, Lammers says she constantly juggled new motherhood while trying to build a stable client list. It's a lot more challenging, I think, for the mom, especially with newborns and everything, to be away and have to go on calls in the middle of the night to you know, pull a calf or those kinds of things. At the start of her career, Lammers faced clients who were skeptical of her abilities. Some would even call, specifically asking for a man. Lammers says most of her clients now are really understanding that she's also got a family. And so the ones that don't 
believe that I should be doing what I do because I am a mom or a, a woman or whatever. Those are just not my clients. While nearly 70% of practicing veterinarians are women, the percentage studying is even higher at 83%. Kate Zarney is a second-year veterinary student. She says while interning at a rural practice in Wisconsin, farmers were often uncomfortable with having a woman veterinarian make livestock calls. They would have to go with one of their male vets first and be like, no, our vet is good. She knows what she's doing. This is part of what inspired the University of Missouri student to become president of her school's Women's Leadership Development Initiative. That's what this organization is focused on, is giving these leadership opportunities to women and helping them build their skills so that their confidence builds and they're ready to go take on leadership positions in their own clinics. She says there's good reason to support female leadership in the industry because women only make up 40% of practice owners. In rural areas, the contrast is even more stark, says veterinary economist Clint Neal of Applied Economics Consulting. Those practices tend to be smaller, much more isolated, and tend to be more geared towards working with farmers and ranchers and, and people in that aspect, which on the farm and rancher side is also very male dominated as well. Neil says this means women are unlikely to locate in rural practices, even as those areas experience a shortage of veterinarians. And women are also less likely to own a practice. Men who own their veterinary practices make up to $100,000 more per year than their female counterparts. And pay gaps also exist for specialty practices and other veterinarians. There's like no other explanation that's not discrimination based on gender. There's none. That's Dr. Tamara Hancock, an assistant teaching professor at the University of Missouri School of Veterinary Medicine. She says men need to be involved in pushing for pay equity as well. It's not these women need to negotiate more. All these men were able to just negotiate themselves up tens of thousands more dollars. Like that's just implausible to me. Hancock says the industry still faces plenty of gendered expectations, too, despite the fact that it's now a profession with a lot more women. You know, you pull up in your truck and they called a vet out, but they're not expecting you. And by you, I mean a woman. And you step out and they're thinking there's no way you can do this. And then there's the watch me and you do it. Back in Nebraska, Lammers has built a practice despite those kinds of experiences. She says with the current shortage of rural veterinarians, it's something the industry needs to reckon with. We're going to need everybody to help, you know, raise animals and keep them healthy and keep our food supply healthy. And farmers, she says, will just have to get used to calling a woman. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Lily Halloran. Harvest Public Media is a collaboration of public newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains, including Prairie Public. Hi, I'm David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Radio Hour on Prairie Public. And while we're proudly rooted in the city that bears our name, we bring you an hour of radio that's just as enlightening and entertaining in North Dakota or wherever you call home. Every Saturday at 3 p.m. Central, you're tuning in for revealing conversations with newsmakers, authors, and artists. And you'll get the real stories behind the news from some of the top journalists in America, my award-winning colleagues, at The New Yorker. Not to mention the coolest theme music in public radio, thanks to Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards. So get in a New Yorker state of mind every weekend on Prairie Public.
This is Dakota Datebook for February 27th. In 1883, Bismarck won out over Yankton as capital of Dakota Territory. When two states emerged from the territory in 1889, Bismarck was named the capital of North Dakota. Not everyone was happy with the decision. Residents of other cities thought their locations would be an improvement. When the Capitol building burned in 1930, removalists, as they were called, thought it was an ideal time to push for the relocation of the state government. It seemed like a good time to promote the move since a new Capitol building had to be built. On this date in 1932, readers of the Bismarck Tribune learned just how determined Jamestown was to bring the state government to that city. The Jamestown Armory was packed for a meeting of the Capitol Club, an organization formed to promote Jamestown becoming the new capital. The prime mover behind the effort was P.M. Hansen, the publisher of the Jamestown Sun. Hansen asserted that the capital had been wrongly placed in the beginning, and Bismarck politicians were using nefarious tactics to keep it. Hansen essentially accused Bismarck leaders of resorting to bribes, saying word was brought to him that Bismarck must spend a great deal of money in defending the capital. Hansen said a go-between had approached him with an offer of $25,000 if he would back off of his efforts, but he offered no proof. The audience cheered when he said he had refused the offer. Another member of the organization said he, too, had been approached about a bribe. But in this case, it was a state legislator who wanted to know how much Jamestown was prepared to pay him for his vote in favor of the change. It comes as no surprise that the Bismarck Tribune took offense at the tone of the Jamestown meeting. An editorial said the arguments in favor of relocating the capital are based on wild assertions and show no respect for the facts. Instead, relying on gross misstatement, half-truths, and downright untruths. The newspaper urged citizens of Bismarck to write letters and warn your friends against the malicious and untruthful propaganda from Jamestown. In the end, of course, Jamestown's efforts were all for naught. The capital was securely located in Bismarck, and there it remains. Today's Dakota Date book was written by Dr. Carol Butcher. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from Humanities North Dakota. And that's a wrap for today's Main Street. Thank you so much for joining us. Tomorrow on Main Street, Valley City State University hosts Native American students for in-depth STEM training. We'll learn about in-STEM, Indians into STEM, and we hope to see you again tomorrow on Main Street.